0: At that time, there was quite a large amount of the population that didn't seem to like the British, because I had an experience that myself. I was walking down uh, uh, by College Green one night, and uh, I noticed a two men and two women coming towards me, and when they come right along me, the two women stepped over and spit on me, because I was in uniform, They spit on me.
1: Welcome awaited the Irishmen returning home from fighting in the First World War. But for many of those joining the British Army, it had seemed the right thing to do.
0: Our family was a loyal, very loyal Anglo-Irish family. And you know, as I, my mind goes back through the years, the first thing I learned to read was a tapestry that was in the sitting room at home. And uh, the first thing I learned to read was what was written on the tapestry. It was, Fear God and Honor the King. And as I say, we were an Anglo-Irish family and that kind of thing. And my eldest brother, he was a battery sergeant major with the the Royal B Battery, the Royal Canadian Horse Artillery. There was five of us, five brothers, and we all served in the 1914-18 war. Two got killed. Pat, he got killed. He got, got blown up at Mimmy Ridge. Frank, he was with the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, and uh, he was killed at Morland Court on the Somme, and I was gassed at Moreland Court on the Somme the same day that he was killed. And um, two of them, I had another brother, Joe. He was a uh, machine gunner with the Irish Guards, and uh, the five of us all served, as I say. Two got killed, I got gassed, and the other two came him through without any trouble.
1: Tell me about the day you got gassed, what happened?
0: Uh, look, that is one thing really, that it is one thing really that uh, I, I don't like thinking about because I'll tell you how I got gassed now. Uh, that day, early in the day, around midday, we were on a working party, there were several, there was about 15 of us on a working party bringing stuff up to the trenches and I couldn't think and uh, the Germans must have seen us because they cut over a barrage of shelfware, you see. That evening, we were getting some mooned in, and uh, one of the lads smelled gas, and he said, get your gas mask on, lads, there's a cell- uh, gas around. So we pulled on our gas mask, and I had not mine on a couple of minutes, and so I began to get sick into it, and I, I had to pull it off or suffocate. And, uh, of course, I staggered around for a while, and then I went down, my eyes went, you see. My eyes, I eyes, was, I, was, I was blind, you know. And, um, anyway, uh, a fellow of the Coldstream Guards came along and he said, Where are you hit, mate? So I said, I'm not hit. I said, I'm gas." And as he bent down for a help me, he said, No wonder you're gas, mate. He said, You've got a big piece of jam and shell in the metal container of your gas mask. That's what hit me in the daytime, see. Of course, it destroyed the gas mask. Well, I suppose if the, gas, if the metal container hadn't stopped the piece of shell, I might have lost a leg. I don't know but I think I would have rather lost a leg rather than being gassed, because it's a terrible thing to be gassed. And I think I went grey-haired over and I was worrying, uh, will I be permanently blind?
1: During the war, what was daily life like? What was food like, living conditions like when you were fighting?
0: Terrible. Now, I'll tell you in all truth, and I defy contradiction. It wasn't living. It was merely punishment. Now... I'll tell you one thing that a lot of people don't uh, realise is that in the early part of the war, the trench warfare, warfare, we suffer from hunger quite a bit. They were you, you you had the bad... of course. The you were the lice you know, and the rats was was the two big things that really got you down. You know, there were millions of lice on us. I mean, the lice was eating the flesh off the the the, the body of the the live Tommies, and the rats was out there gorging themselves on the bodies of the dead Tommies. You couldn't help but see these things, because there you are, you had to st- be on the fire step, you had to be looking out there and you could see them. You didn't leave wounded out long, especially helpless wounded, because the t- 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 the rats would attack them.
2: I think of Lieutenant Commander Esmond, V.C., of Lance Corporal Keneally, V.C., of Captain fegan V.C., and other... Irish heroes that I could easily recite. And then I must confess that uh, bitterness by Britain
3: against the Irish race died in my heart. In this election, will you vote for the faith of Tone, Davitt and Parnell, or will you vote for that of Arthur Lynch, Stephen Gwynne, W. Arthur Redmond, T. L. Esmond, all of the English army, as you decide so shall it be recorded for you. You can have community with Ireland's heroic dead on the one hand or with the damned souls of those others from McMurray downwards on the other. Sinn Féin Election Statement, Irish Independent, December 3rd, 1918.
1: Condemned by Sinn Fein in 1918, praised by Winston Churchill on VE Day 1945, the Irish who fought in the British forces in the two world wars often found themselves the victims of political circumstance. On the 20th of September 1914, MP John Redmond, leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, urged the Irish to go wherever the firing line extends. Kevin Myers, Irish Times journalist and author of numerous articles on the Irish in the First World War.
4: It's very hard to be sure about motives for any of these things, uh, but it's quite clear from uh, the recruitment patterns in the early days that a lot of people did consider it acceptable then to join the British Army because the leader who had secured home rule was the man who was also su- suggesting to people that they, they join the British Army to fight for Belgium, for the rights of small nations.
1: And what happened to those who went?
4: Well, a lot of them never came back. The um, the very early drafts went to the regular Irish battalions, already at the front, and so they went into action very early on.
5: Well, you couldn't get nothing in the world as badges. Nothing in the world is ever as badges, because you didn't know where to look, or you didn't know what to do, you didn't know where to run. And your trenches would blow into bits, and, and the trenches zigzagged. zigzag. They weren't straight at all. You could go from one to the other into the... German camps if you wanted, by run through the trenches if you escape. And then there'd be, the shells now then, and there were certain trains then for burying the dead. The soldiers in the Red Cross had to bury them, there was hundreds of them, and they were want to give a hand in. There might be 200 on the hole, a big shell hole. Next thing was, after a while, another one had dropped down, if you see the bodies and everything going up in the bust on and all over the basement the place. Then they'd, what they made of the major bodies in the English the helpers was like spreading dung on, on land. They used to have it so scattered. Because they were drawn to today, they were gone up tomorrow. You see, no. There was mighty,
4: mighty bombs they were
5: But it was bad.
4: The 16th Irish Division went out to the front in April 1916, and they were composed very largely of. of um, Red and volunteers, but by no means entirely red and and they suffered a variety of catastrophes. They were gassed on their first day in the line, and the inner Fusiliers and the Dublin Fusiliers and the Royal Irish Fusiliers suffered horrific casualties, perhaps five hundred dead from gas poisoning in their first hours in the line. Uh, well, a cruel irony that that should have performed them so early on. The 36th Ulster Division, which really wouldn't have had Redmondites in, would have had Catholic Nationalists in, but not so much Redmondites, um, was effectively destroyed in July 1916. And then the 16th Irish Division suffered a very similar fate at Ginchy.
3: Here are two pictures from my father's head. I have kept them like secrets until now. First, the Ulster Division at the Somme going over the top with Fuck the Pope, no surrender. A boy about to die screaming, Give 'em one for the Shank Hill. Wilder than Gurkhas were my father's words of admiration and bewilderment. Next comes the London Scottish padre resettling kilts with his swagger-stick, with a stylish backhand and a prayer. Over a landscape of dead buttocks, my father followed him for fifty years. At last, a belated casualty, he said, lead traces flaring till they hurt, I am dying for king and country slowly. I touched his hand. His thin head I touched.
4: They came back to an entirely changed situation politically because the the Irish Parliamentary Party had gone into a total eclipse. It had ceased to have any uh, meaningful political power in Ireland.
1: And there were even some incidents concerning people who come, came back.
4: Oh, indeed there were. St- Stephen Gwynne, who was a, 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 an MP for the Parliamentary Party and an officer in the Conor Rangers, uh, was stoned and attacked with um, rotten eggs in, um, in the West somewhere. There was a case in 1919 uh, 19 of um, a drummer boy in the Dublin Fusiliers being lynched in uh, Ring's being killed, been beaten to death by a crowd. Uh, and there was a level of hostility that must have made it very, very baffling for the volunteers who returned.
1: thousand Irishmen never made it home from the First World War. Up until recently, a memorial park at Island Bridge in Dublin, erected to pay homage to those who died, has been in a state of decay. But it has now been restored by the National War Memorials Committee and the Office of Public Works. I visited the park with Campbell Heather of the War Memorials Committee.
2: Well, it was set up to commemorate the 49,400 Irishmen who were killed in the First World War by a committee which was formed in 1919. The first meeting was held in the Vice Regal Lodge which is now Arsene Ucthran. and the um, committee was formed and money was collected from the 32 counties of Ireland to have an appropriate memorial. This memorial was designed and planned by Sir Edward Lutyens RA. He is a, or was a very famous architect of the day. He Design New Delhi and a lot of memorial gardens and ordinary gardens all over the world. Here on this side we have the cross house. This is, um, contains a cross which was erected on the Somme by the divisional pioneers of the 16th Irish division.
1: There are four houses, are there?
2: Four houses, one for each province, actually. And, um, You've seen the cross house, now we're approaching the book house. The book house is where the memorial books are kept. i just open the door now. If I can find the right key, there's so many key books. Now this is the book house, and here we have eight bronze bookcases. They're beautifully made, as you can see. Each one is locked, and they are to contain the eight memorial volumes, which record the names of the 49,400 Irishmen killed.
1: Tommy Lindsay, you work in the gardens here. You've been here for a long time. What's going on? That's
6: right. This is the... Uh, I work in the Memorial Park. Uh, uh, it's to, concerned with the 19, to the uh, 50,000 Irishmen who was killed in the 1418 War. It's now being restored back to its actual design of when it was originally designed in the 1930s. The design of it was in the 1940s. We now have replaced all the yew hedge which uh, we had to take away true age. Also we have replaced 30,000 roses of various different types. And uh, the stonework has been restored also.
1: You'd like yeah. to see it in this state Oh after yes,
6: yes, and the a, there is a very a lot of uh, local people who are very concerned about the restoring of the memorial park.
1: What was it like when it was in a bad state? Was it upsetting for you?
6: Well, it was very depressing to look at it being in such a state. Um, we, uh, naturally enough, the stonework being so valuable and uh, the design of the stonework, of course, uh, one of the best world's architects, Luchen was, was uh, the designer of this place who had part in hand of various big projects all over the world. He also... Uh, had part in hand in Liverpool Cathedral. So naturally enough to look at the design of the stonework it's very depressing to see it to be see it run down. So now that we have seen it, a lot of the stonework being redressed, the book rooms being refurbished, it's uh, it's a pleasure to look at it.
1: And a pleasure to work replaced,
6: here. replaced and a pleasure to walk here.
1: Only you're trying to restore the gardens here along Lutchen's lines. What kind of a challenge does that pose?
7: Well, um, the initial problem was, in fact, that uh, there was no original layout and design for some of the planting, particularly the roses. And uh, we've had to work back from initial uh, sale receipts. Back. Um, also, the problem we had the problem of actually finding some of the old varieties of the roses, and uh, we've had to replace with some modern close approximations. We hope in the future, in fact, to replace entirely. Uh, the old roses. Um, a lot of the original plant, even the cherries, had long since died out and uh, we had the same problem, we had to replace them all. We've replaced all the cherries, um, nearly 80 went in this year, and about three and a half thousand roses have been planted. Also we've uh, replaced the yew hedge, which was originally in position. And uh, that entailed about fifteen hundred plants going in. So we're well on our way now to uh, really having the place back to looking its former glory. And you're head gardener here? Yes, that's right. Uh, myself and uh, Tommy and a uh, Pat and Aim, and uh, between the four of us, we look after about twenty acres of land here.
2: This is a national park. It's it's owned by the people of Dublin and controlled by the Board of Works. It was granted by President Cosgrave through the Memorial Committee to erect the memorial, but the actual park is the property of the citizens of Dublin. We we have um, 36 seats in Lutchen's original plan. You can see them around on the book houses there. They have all been restored, but we also put to hope, a lot, hope to put a lot more seats around the park that people can sit in,
1: and perhaps think occasionally about those who died in the wars.
2: Yes, that's what it's all about. It is a memorial to all those Irishmen who died in the First World War. And that is what the park is all about. And that is why the um, Memorial Committee, uh, um, they were intent on restoring it and bringing it back
3: as a mark of appreciation to these terrible slaughter that happened in the First World War. So here, while the mad guns curse overhead and tired men sigh with mud for couch and floor... Know that we fools, now with the foolish dead, died not for flag, nor king, nor emperor, but for a dream born in a herdsman's shed and for the secret scripture of the poor.
8: Yet until a short time ago, there was hope. But now hope is gone, and the people of Europe are plunged once more into the misery and anguish of war. Noting the march of events, your government decided its policy early last spring and announced its decision to you and to the world. We resolved that the aim of our policy would be to keep our people out of the war as I said in the Doyle, with our history, with our experience of the last war and with a part of our country still unjustly severed from us, we felt that no other decision and no other policy was possible. The
1: outbreak of World War II and Taoiseach Eamon de Valera announcing that Ireland would remain neutral. Yet many, many Irish people still joined the British forces. Kevin Myers.
4: And there's no question that large numbers of people that I've met and I've heard of, uh, working-class Dubliners in particular, joined up because uh, they could get more money in the British Army or the Royal Navy than they could uh, staying at home. But you can identify two other main sources of recruitment. Those... Uh, men who joined up, and women, who joined up because of the traditional family involvement. The Irish Guards, for example, recruited many people from Tipperary from Irish Guards' families, and those Irish Guards' families are still there. They're recognizably there. They have a regimental loyalty. And then there are those other people who joined up to oppose Nazism. And they are a substantial proportion. There's no denying that, that many Irish people did join up because they felt that the first line of Ireland's defence was in the British Army. I, I was glad to be in
9: a situation that allowed me to make some contribution to stop the terror of Nazis, of which by then we had known, and I had come to know, was a very dangerous thing in any country. But I still uh, had my mind made up that If anything happened to my own country, Ireland, if it were invaded by either Germany or England or Britain, I would know what I would do. I would just leave and go home.
1: Going out those nights, did you ever feel scared?
9: Oh, God, yes. (laughs) Oh, yes, yes. I mean, you don't do these things without feeling scared. But again, I, I think I've always been practical. We were issued with tin hats... Well, I never wore my tin hat. I always sat on it on the basis that anti-aircraft fire came up from below <laughs> and protection of the vital parts was found <laughs> in my head. But we had been hit once or twice in, 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 in a fairly precarious situation. But the, I think my belief in the good God was never put to the test as much. I did believe in him, I can admit it now, and I believe totally too, oddly enough, in the intercession of Our Lady, to whom I prayed very much in times of stress.
3: I know that I shall meet my fate somewhere among the clouds above. Those that I fight I do not hate, those that I guard I do not love. My country is Kiltartan cross, my countrymen Kiltartans poor. No likely end could bring them loss or leave them happier than before. Nor law nor duty bade me fight, nor public men nor cheering crowds. A lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult in the clouds. I balanced all, brought all to mind. The years to come seemed waste of breath. A waste of breath the years behind, in balance with this life, this death. Well, I happened to be
10: working in England at the time, working in Shorts in Rochester, and I found that I was doing some work on airframes and fitting, and I found that the work was repetitive and I got a bit bored, so I thought I'd like to have a go join in the RAF.
1: So it a sense of adventure?
10: A sense of adventure, I would say, mainly, yes. And also, I've been mean, living in Kent, Joanne, and I was there during the Battle of Britain and got very interested in the RAF at that particular time.
1: After being shot down, this ex-serviceman spent the end of the war in a German camp.
10: We eventually were taken uh, for interrogation to uh, and uh, to Langloft, which is a famous interrogation centre where people were picked up, prisoners of war, and eventually got to our camp uh, to the Stalag Luft, which was up on the Baltic coast, a place called Bath. And there a while away the next year, I think, before the, the war finally finished.
1: What was the camp life like?
10: Well, it, in a way, it was it was, it was all right in, in that uh, you were in captivity, but there were, we. I was in a camp where there were, it was mainly Americans, there were 10,000 Americans, I think about 2,000 RAF people. We were an overflow, really, from RAF camps. But there was so much to do and so many talented people there to help you to do it. We had courses languages, we had courses in navigation, we had courses in automobile engineering.
1: What about food? Were rations short?
10: Rations... Yes, there were times because at that stage in the war, the transport system in Germany was breaking down a little, and uh, whilst the normal thing would have been one Red Cross parcel per person per week, but there were times we had to share between three people per week. But even at that, you could, you could cope all right.
1: Were cigarettes scarce or valued?
10: No, cigarettes were, uh, they weren't all that scarce, but they were valued in in so far as we. We used them as a kind of a, a system of barter or a monetary system. Every, every, everything you had had a value, a value in cigarettes, so you could actually trade in the camp. We even had a, a shop in the camp where you could purchase something, a fountain pen or a watch or so on. Buy. It had, it had a value in cigarettes.
11: There's a home for a Batchy airmen way down in the sunny Sudan,
5: where all the airmen are Batchy, and so was the blingin' old man. There's bags and bags of bullshine saluting on the square, and when we're not saluting, we're up in the bloody air.
1: Where it's early Sunday afternoon in the British Legion's club in Dublin's Dockland where sing-songs are a regular occurrence. Memories of the past adorn the club's walls, medals, photographs, as plaques as and banners. The club is packed with ex-servicemen who've dropped in for a pint.
5: So Shire, Shire, Somersetshire, the skipper looks on her with pride. He'd have a blue fit if he saw any dirt on the side of the Somerset Chine. This is
1: what... Seamus, when did you join up, for example?
12: In ni- early 1940.
1: And why did you join
12: No okay. So the only alternative was to go away and join up over there.
1: Did you think about it much before you went? Did you have any idea of what to expect?
12: Well, actually, I did. I thought about it a lot. Uh, I, I was thinking about, well, what the Jews had to put up with over in Poland and these places, you know. And I felt, I felt they were getting a raw deal. And I come from at the time a Jewish neighbourhood, namely Combrasse Street. So I thought, well I'll go over and see if we can help them in any way, and that was the only way I could think of.
1: So where did you go then?:
12: I went to the RAF in Belfast.:
1: How did Irish people react to you when you came back from the war?
12: Oh, I was always a hero when I came back on holidays so on leave. I was a hero. big, big deal from the RAF yeah. Uh, that's the way people and in them days looked at it. We were helping the war effort.
1: Do you think it's different now? Do you think people look at it a bit differently oh, now? Oh, they
12: do. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, they do. Most people are afraid now. They're afraid. Afraid of the IRA. And then you want to sit attached to the British Army or the Royal Air Force or anything else, uh, people just don't want to know them.
6: Don't want to know them. They're afraid. Afraid.
1: Why were you so keen to go to war?
5: I, I I was interested in aircraft. I come from a Republican a Republic, family. He's a
3: Republican background. That's how my father
5: was sixteen and turned at Oxford the whole issue. Yeah, he's, he's I was ostracised for joining up.
1: By your own family?
13: Yes.
12: And,
5: and I wear I wear my private pride love.
1: And how did your family react when you told them what you were doing?
5: Oh, I scarpered blue. Mother never forgave me. Even a joy, and she said, "You took the Saxon shilling, and that was it. be a penny. It doesn't matter." Do
1: you still have no contact with
5: your family, or? Oh, I see. Well, two my dear sisters died, and Annie's arm is made your brother. Oh, that's the fellow that took the Saxon
4: shilling. I felt there was a a a urge to be do, to do to do something like uh, not so much to help the British as to. Uh, for
0: Ireland to do something, for the people of Ireland to do something. In the
1: war. In
0: the war, the people of Ireland. My father, of course, was 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 an an ex-World War soldier himself. Incidentally, there was a very high proportion of
9: um,
0: Irish Christian secondary school boys in in the Royal Air Force. I served with three of them in,
4: in, in the Far East myself, not on the same squadron. Was in the Far East, and uh, they were all they were all uh, secondary school boys who'd come out with their with their Leaving Certificate, and uh, eighteen and half and and, uh, there was definitely
13: no
9: future for them in, in, in wartime Ireland.
1: we're here in St. Patrick's Cathedral where the Remembrance Service is held every November. Mm-hmm. Why is this a particularly suitable place for that service?
11: Well, the old Irish regimental war memorials are here, of course, and the, the banners of the old Irish regiments are left here, like the Dublin Fusiliers, the Connaught Rangers, and they're all here in the north transept of the cathedral. And, of course, some of the later memorials, like, for example, the Irish Guards here... They include uh, those Irish people who fell in the recent World War, 1939 to 1945 and the RAF because these were people from all over Ireland, north and south. You see, St. Patrick's is the national cathedral in our church. It spans the border. It has the two dimensions, the southern and northern dimension. And therefore, because it's the National Cathedral, it, ha- it embodies the different traditions. And we think this is a very good thing because it's one of the few places in Ireland where you get the traditions meeting.
1: And Irish losses were particularly bad in the First World War. Oh, and yes, in
11: the yes, Irish losses were, were particularly bad. And over here you see these are... Books here, volumes here, which contain, they're in a case here, and they contain the names uh, of every Irish person who fell in the Great War, 1418 War. Uh, Pages turned over so that you can see. Pages turned over every week. You can pick out there, they all are, for example, um, Joseph Dodd, regimental number 9465. Rifleman, first Royal Irish Rifles, killed in action, France, November the 16th, 1914, born in Dublin. Every Irishman that fell in 1418 war, his name is recorded here in these volumes of books. The descendants of these people who died very often come in and look at them, and they value them as, uh, in a rather family way they're part of the family record and memorial not just a memorial in saint patrick's but indeed something of deep significance to the family the grandfather died he was in that regiment there is the banner of the regiment there is the memorial of the regiment and so they have a a deep sort of personal feeling towards the memorial
1: somebody remembers
11: that somebody remember and on Remembrance Sunday apart from the wreaths laid here by the various organizations and embassies which um, festoon all these memorials all the embassies uh, most of the embassies lay reeds and, and organizations there are the little private touches where you know a small wreath is laid in memory of Frank uh, from a family from a family, as well as the official reads, which is very touching that these memorials have a particular family and personal significance for so many people.
1: Colonel Brian Clark, Chairman of the British Legion in Ireland.
11: Well, of course, um, for many years,
13: there used to be a remembrance service at Ireland Bridge. Uh, but after 1969, uh, we decided we should uh, be... Uh, a little bit uh, quieter in our remembrance, so to speak, and were very happy when um, uh, Dean Victor Griffin uh, allowed us to have what is now the annual service in St. Patrick's Cathedral. Uh, Subsequently, um, the uh, Defence Forces were represented at one of the services, I forget, five years ago, perhaps it is now, uh, and there was some uh, argument about it afterwards. As a result of that, there is now a truly national day of commemoration held in July, uh, which commemorates the Irish men who've fallen in whatever cause. And uh, the last two years, I've been invited to take a group, a small group from the Royal British Legion. But, of course, I've no doubt that uh, services like Bale-Nabla will go on, and similarly we would um, see the service in St. Patrick's Cathedral going on in parallel.
5: Saturday, June the 10th, the official birthday of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II of England. The day on which Her Majesty's forces all over the world pay homage to their sovereign. Here in Tripoli the playground is bright with colour. To our left is the saluting dais and to our right, drawn up in open order, is the 1st Battalion of the Royal Irish Fusiliers. Just below us is
1: the 1st Battalion of the Royal Irish Fusiliers trooping the colours in Tripoli in 1961. Colonel Clarke defends the dual loyalties of those Irishmen who, like himself, take part in such ceremonies.
13: Well, of course, you have to realise that um, every British serviceman, from wherever he may have come, uh, took an oath of allegiance to the Crown. You also have the fact that there are two main traditions on this island. And whilst it might be difficult for some people to realise it, uh, it is possible to consider oneself an Irishman and yet still uh, have that uh, uh, connection with uh, the British forces.
1: It was Dr Garrett Fitzgerald's government that made provision for just one year for full army representation at the Remembrance Day service and St Patrick's Cathedral. But the gesture caused an enormous political row and it never happened again.
14: Well, our concern was to bring together the different traditions in this island. Um, since the War of Independence, there's been a predominant nationalist tradition which goes back to that war into 1916. Uh, but, first of all, um, one has to recall that when the First War broke out, when the vast majority of Irish people endorsed the decision of the Parliamentary Party to... Um, join in uh, and support the Allies, and uh, vast numbers of Irish people uh, joined the British forces, many times more than ever became involved in the national movement. Um, That subsequently uh, was overtaken by events. But it's also the case that in the last World War, uh, a large number of Irish people, with the agreement of the government of the day, which made no attempt to inhibit um, that movement, um took part in that conflict also uh, against uh, Nazism. And um, they, too, deserve an honourable place in the
1: history and records of our country. Some of them have said to me that since the Northern Troubles re-erupted in the late 1960s that they have found their situation that bit more sensitive, that they found it difficult to have their marches to celebrate the fact that they were in the British forces. Would you think that's valid perception? on
14: I think that may well be true yes. Um, and the fact that, um, that we're in a situation where the British Army in Northern Ireland has uh, to play a role there um, in maintaining order which is a difficult role and one which has not always been accomplished that. Um, mistakes being made or things being done that uh, are open to criticism. That perhaps has made the position more difficult.
1: Do you think we as a people have shut out that whole particular strain in our history, or do you think it's just a limited number of people who refuse to recognise that so many people, Irish people fought in the World Wars?
14: No, I think it's fairly general. I I, I don't think the majority of people are um, divisive about it or or bigoted or hostile. Uh, That's not the case. But it is true that um, after the First World War one political tradition replaced another, if you like, or um, displaced one that had been acceptable to most Irish people previously. And perhaps in some curious way, some sense of guilt has meant the people have tended to blot that out and to forget that there was, in fact, the position of the majority of Irish people. Um, I think it's right to remind ourselves of that, uh, and that we don't attempt to rewrite history and to pretend that things were different from what they were. And it it is difficult for people um, to accept the complexity of our history. It's always much easier to have a simple myth and to stick to it. And we have, of course, invented a whole series of myths uh, in relation to our nationalism. Uh, And uh, if if those myths are challenged in any way, people get very upset. And that's understandable. It's easier to go through life if you have a simple thesis to hang on to. In fact, our history is very complex, and it's not easy for people to look back and to relate to different strands, to relate to those who took part in 1916, the War of Independence, to relate to those who were involved in the First World War, and indeed the Second World War, um, and to relate to Unionists in Northern Ireland. Uh, The complexity of that process defeats many people, understandably, um, and it requires a considerable intellectual effort to overcome that, and a considerable effort of imagination to create the acceptance of the idea of a pluralist society which draws on different strands in its history. It will be a long time before we get that right,
3: In Memoriam, Francis Ledwich, killed in France, 31st of July, 1917. In you, our dead enigma, all the strains criss-cross in useless equilibrium, and as the wind tunes through this vigilant bronze, I hear again the sure, confusing drum. You followed from Boyne water to the Balkans, but missed the twilight note your flute should sound. You were not keyed or pitched like these true blue ones, though all of you consort now underground.
1: The following war veterans contributed to this documentary. Jack Campbell, Jack King, Kevin Gibney, Don Harkin, Pat Dolan and Seamus Cahill. Music was from the Regimental Band of the 1st Battalion of the Royal Ulster Rifles, the Theatre Workshop Group, Vera Lynn and the Royal Irish Rangers. Poetry was from Michael Longley, Tom Kettle, W.B. Yeats and Seamus Heaney.
3: And the production was by Noelle O'Reilly, who you heard there. And that programme, in fond memory, concludes our short series of beginners. I hope you found them interesting. Thanks, I suppose I should say, to Gay for the use of the hall. And from me, for now, thank you and goodbye.